Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask now that You would especially guide this time of studying Your Word. Uh, Father, we know that You've given us Your Word for instruction, uh, for reproof, for correcting us and for training us in righteousness. And Father, we're seeking those things now. We're seeking to be taught and to be instructed and to be corrected in our thinking. I pray, Lord, that as we study Your Word each and every Sunday and also on our own during the week, that we would be mindful of the fact that this book that You've given us is to be for the changing of our worldview, for the changing of our viewpoint, to help us think more like Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3 today. But before we turn there, uh, I wanted to uh, bring, draw your attention to a man that some of you may know and some of you may not know. Timothy Leary was his name. Uh, Timothy Leary was born in uh, 1920 and uh, died in 1996. He had a Ph.D. in psychology from UC Berkeley. Raise your hand if you know who this is. Wow, I'm impressed. I did not think there would be that many people who knew Timothy Leary. That's uh, over 50% or so. Timothy Leary is a very interesting character, as, as many of you now probably know. Uh, he was an assistant professor at UC Berkeley. He was a lecturer at Harvard University. He was a, uh, very much an advocate of, uh, of drug use, as a matter of fact. Uh, he was an advocate of, of regular, common use of the drug LSD. And uh, so Tim, uh, Timothy Leary was a very controversial figure, as you can imagine, in the, in the 60s, in the Cultural Revolution of the 60s in, in the United States. Timothy had a quote that is often... Uh, Timothy had a saying, I should say, that is often uh, epitomizes who he was. Does anybody know what that saying was? Uh, we got a few sayings out there. How about this saying? Question authority. Remember this bumper sticker? You've seen it on some cars. Uh, you'll see it on cars today. You'll see it in, in, uh, on uh, college campuses and whatnot. This bumper sticker, question authority, was most likely coined by Timothy Leary. And here's one of the speeches that Timothy, in which Timothy Leary quoted this, uh, this phrase. He said, think for yourself. Question authority. Throughout human history... It has been the authorities, the political, the religious, the educational authorities, who have attempted to comfort us by giving us order, rules, regulations, informing, forming in our minds their view of reality. Think for yourself. Question authority. It's a very provocative quote, uh, one that uh, many people embraced uh, during the 1960s. My purpose in quoting Leary today is, is not necessarily to belittle him, nor is it to endorse his statement. I simply want to point out that the word authority, as evidenced by Timothy Leary, often triggers very distrusting emotions. The word authority as it did for Timothy Leary in the 1960s, when he heard that word, he thought of pride, arrogance, power. He thought of selfishness. 
He thought of people who were imposing their views on other people. And Timothy Leary didn't like that. May I suggest that Timothy Leary's comment here above has actually on some level affected all of us over, the, over time. The word authority, when we see that word today, uh, we often also have a little bit of a distrusting emotion when we see that word or when we see someone in a position of authority. It's become a little bit more commonplace than perhaps 50 years ago to not innately trust authority. I bring up Timothy Leary's quote, however, most importantly, to highlight the fact that Jesus Christ spoke of authority in a radically different manner than someone like Timothy Leary did. When Jesus Christ used the word authority, He was using it in such a manner that was drastically different than that conceived in the 1960s of those who said, question authority. Jesus understood authority not as a position of power, but as a means of service and mission. The title of my message today is Jesus and the Twelve Disciples, Authority Given for a Missional a missional purpose. Now, when we are approaching our text today, I want us to be mindful of this. As we study this text, as we learn about authority today in the book of Mark, as we've been going through it for some time now, the text that we read from verses 7 to 19 is actually, in, in totality, it is a transition text. In other words, from verses 7 to 19 of chapter 3 in Mark, you're going to find Mark making a very large transition between the previous section that he's been talking about Jesus and the upcoming section in which he will talk about Jesus. But even in this transitional text, even in a text where Mark is summarizing and giving generalities and not getting into so much specifics, we find in this transition text some incredible wisdom with respect to the topic of authority. So I want you to hang in there. The, the, the topic on authority will be a little bit toward the end of this. Turn to Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. We're going to read this text together and go through it verse by verse. We're going to learn today what Jesus thought of authority. Take a look at Mark 3, verse 7. It says this, But Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude from Galilee followed Him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things He was doing, came to Him. So He told His disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for Him because of the multitude, lest they should crush Him. For He healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about Him to touch Him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw Him, fell down before Him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But He sternly warned them that they should not make Him known. Verse 13, And He went up on the mountain, and He called to Him those He Himself wanted, and they came to Him. And then He appointed twelve, that they might be with Him, and that He might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and John, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, 
Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Focus, if you will, on verses 7 to 9. Let me read those again and we're going to go through these together. It says this, But Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed Him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they heard how many things He was doing, they came to Him. And so He told His disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for Him because of the multitude lest they should crush Him. Now twice Mark indicates in verses 7-9 to that there is a great multitude, a great multitude following Jesus. Uh, Scholars estimate that this was perhaps even more than hundreds, perhaps thousands of people at this point were following Jesus. People from all parts of the land of Israel, from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. Take a look at the map uh, behind me. Uh, I've given you a little bit of a map, probably a little bit hard to see, but in red, that little star is where Galilee is, the Sea of Galilee. And Mark here is, in effect, basically describing the whole entire region here. He's saying people from Galilee, which is just west of the Sea of Galilee, just to the left of the star. He says people from Judea, which is south of Galilee, on down through Samaria. People in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And even some people beyond the traditional boundaries of Israel, like Idumea, to the far south, at the very bottom, you see Idumea, from which the Herods came. Uh, the Herods were from Idumea. And also it says Tyre and Sidon, up to the north, nor- the northwest uh, in particular, along the coastlands. Uh, these were not typical Jewish regions, along with beyond the Jordan. So to, uh, to the uh, east of the Jordan River, which is uh, right down the middle, if you will, of, of of that map. Jesus' fame, His popularity, had spread not only within the regions of Israel, but also without the regions of Israel, far beyond the regions of Israel. His authoritative teaching in His healing ministry was something that people were very, very drawn to. Turn back to verses 7-9. to It says that the crowds were taking, were taking good note of Jesus' wonder-working abilities. He's healing sick. He's exercising demons. He's gathering the multitudes together around Him. So many were coming, in fact, that Jesus turns to His disciples and says, hey, we need a boat. We need a boat next to us just in case as I travel along the circumference of the Sea of Galilee throughout, as I I continue to preach and teach and and heal and exercise demons, we need a boat next, next, next door to us so that we can escape in case the crowds become too numerous, become too, uh, uh, too aggressive, if you will, in seeking relief from their physical afflictions. Not much can be said of verses 7 to 9 other than, hey, Jesus is popular here. His popularity is immense. It's immense. And Mark continues to summarize his earthly ministry. Take a look at verse 10. It says, For He healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about Jesus to touch Him, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw Him, fell down before Him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But He sternly warned them that they should not make Him known. Healing ministry. The sick are touching Him and they're being made well. Merely by the touch of His garment, many are being healed. And yet, Jesus also finds Himself in the presence of unclean spirits. And... These people, 
who are filled with a demon, who are possessed by a demon, by an unclean spirit, when they see Jesus, when they're face to face with Him, they fall prostrate to the ground. Now in the West, um, I've made mention uh, numerous times, and I'll say it again, in the West, we really uh, don't often have a concept of demon possession. I'm sure if I asked some of you have seen uh, an aspect of possession, uh, of someone being possessed by a demon. But nevertheless, it is not common for us to see in the West, is it not? Uh, typically, uh, for whatever reason, we, we just don't see it in our society as much. But I, I assure you, it was very, very real in the ancient Near East. Not only in the Bible, but in other extra-biblical writings, you find many, many, many accounts of people being possessed by demons. People being possessed by unclean spirits. And there's a few things that are characteristic of these people. The Bible talks about those who are demon-possessed, and this is what the Bible says about these kinds of people. It says they're often mute. They can't talk. They're often foaming at the mouth. They're often throwing themselves into fire. They're often residing in graveyards or tombs. They're often exhibiting violence toward themselves or other people. It is almost always the case that people who are demon-possessed are erratic and reckless in their behavior. And one thing is clear. They are unable to be controlled. It is incapable of other people to control them because of their possession. And yet, in a summary statement, Mark makes, makes mention of the facts. Take a look at Chapter 3, verse 11 says this, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. When confronted with Jesus, these same demons, erratic, reckless, uncontrollable, all of a sudden had an unparalleled level of control. Every time they see Jesus, they fall to the ground. And they declare who He is. Now I tell you all of this because I'm not sure how much we realize what an awesome experience that would have been for the crowds to see. What an amazing experience to see. Imagine you're in your Jewish village and you know quite well of those in your village who are undergoing demon possession. You know them quite well because whenever they enter the town, whenever they enter the marketplace, everyone, everyone steps back and allows them to do their thing as they are reckless and erratic and foaming at the mouth, making inaudible noises, unintelligible noises. The people in those villages knew who were demon-possessed. And they knew that they were uncontrolled. And yet every time these crowds saw Jesus coming, they would look at those in their village who were demon-possessed and they would see them falling down before this person. And they would say, who is this man? Who is this man who can even control those who are demon-possessed? Jesus' level of control over these people was unparalleled. Verse 12 indicates that Jesus sternly warned the demons that they should not make Him known. And we often see Jesus doing this in the early part of His ministry. I refer you uh, to my message on, on September 23rd for more of a detailed study on what, why He did this. Why did Jesus constantly tell them not to talk? 
Uh, so turn, if you would, if you want to go on the website, you can listen to the September 23rd message. But I just want to make mention of the primary reason, which I believe is, is the reason Jesus did this. The primary reason why Jesus told the demons to be quiet was because when the demons declared His identity, whether it was Messiah or Holy One of Israel or Son of God, when, when they would declare those titles, those titles carried with them connotations based on that culture, based in the minds of the Jewish people, when they heard those, those words, Messiah, Holy One of Israel, Son of God, the people of, 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 of Israel were thinking in different terms than what Jesus was thinking of. When the people heard those terms, they were thinking that Jesus was coming to be the King. To overthrow Rome. To reestablish Israel. To be the King. The political ruler of Israel. And I submit to you that that is not why Jesus came at His first advent. That is not why Jesus came the first time. And so He knew that when the demons were declaring His identity, He wanted to silence them early on in His ministry because Jesus wanted to use those terms Messiah, Holy One of Israel, and Son of God for His purposes. For the genuine and true reasons why He had come. To save the world. To do away with sin and death. To bring spiritual relief. To bring physical healing and relief. Jesus' first advent was not the time in which God had intended for Him to become the King of Israel. And so Jesus silenced the demons. He says, I don't want you using those terms because the people hearing those terms are going to misunderstand them. It is not until later on in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus begins to embrace those terms. He embraces it from His closest apostle, Peter. And, it is, and the reason He embraces it is because it is hoped that the people are now beginning to understand a little bit more of what that title means. And yet even Peter in Mark chapter 8 still doesn't have a full understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Turn to verse 13. 13 to 15, it says this. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and He called to Him those He Himself wanted, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, that they might be with Him, that He might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. It says Jesus went up on the mountain, and Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke indicates that He spent an entire evening in prayer upon this mountain. After which Jesus called to Himself those He Himself wanted. Mark wants the reader to know that the selections that Jesus had made to fulfill the role of apostle were deliberate and chosen by Jesus Himself. He picked those whom He wanted. Now to be clear, verse 13 again is a summary statement. It's a summary statement of the calling of the disciples. We've already read in our earlier studies in the book of Mark, in chapters 1 and 2, we've already read of five disciples who have already been called. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, or Matthew. And so this, verse 13, is in essence meant to sum up the entire calling of the twelve. These men are to be Jesus' closest companions. Now I want to look at these men... Um, 
I want to look at their names briefly, and then we'll return to verses 14 and 15. But jump to verse 16 for a moment. These are the 12 men whom Jesus called. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Does anybody know the Twelve Apostles song? Twelve Disciples? There were twelve disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James' brother, John. Sing it, Marianne. Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and... There we go. Alright, you gotta learn, you gotta learn that song. How many of you missed that in Sunday school? How could you? How could you? Those are the twelve disciples. That's the only time you'll hear me singing. Now, it's not our concern today to discuss each of these men. Uh, that would uh, truly take uh, much more than, than the time allotted to us today. Uh, although it is an interesting study. To do a study of the disciples and what they did and what they accomplished in their lives and how they died. It's a very, very interesting study. And I could point you to some resources if you're interested. But I want to point out three facts. I want to point out three simple facts about the disciples. First, let's focus on Matthew here. Number one, Matthew is also known as Levi in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. Okay, take note of that because those, those, the names are used interchangeably. Uh, well, in, in Mark they're used inter- interchangeably, I should say. So Matthew is also known as Levi in, in Mark 2.14. Secondly, Thaddeus. Thaddeus who is mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, is also known as Judas, the son of James, in the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Now, the former two writers, that is Matthew and Mark, were likely using his nickname to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. Very, very likely scenario here, in which they were intending for um, Judas, uh, the son of James, to be distinguished readily from Judas Iscariot, and so they used a nickname or a surname for Judas, son of James. And three, here's an interesting fact. Simon the Canaanite does not mean that Simon was not Jewish. It is likely that the word Canaanite, which in Greek is kananaios, derived from the Aramaic word kanan, meaning zealous. Hence, we see Luke calling him Simon the Zealot in both Luke and Acts. All right, so that word Canaanite there is not to be construed with he came from the from from a, a, a a non-Jewish Canaanite tribe. No, that is not the case. That Greek word is specific, uh, is specifically related to that Aramaic word, and, and hence we get the term zealous or zealot. Uh, also, the last uh, five letters of that word, kananios, A-I-O-U-S, that is very typical in Greek to describe a political party or a group or a people group, or a political party, or, or some sort of a committee, if you will, it is possible that Simon, the Canaanite, was, prior to his becoming a disciple, it is very possible that he was part of a very revolutionary political group in Israel who, fought, who, who intended to take power away from Rome and reestablish it to the people of Israel. And so it is likely that Simon was, was a very uh, charismatic, very zealous man who genuinely... Uh, well, hated Rome and wanted the Roman government to get out of Israel. He wanted Israel to be independent, Simon did. And so you can imagine the relationship that Simon the Canaanite might have had with 
Matthew or Levi the tax collector who worked for Rome. You see, when you really start analyzing this group, you see some of the intricacies that, that really look, look more like an internal combustion engine than it does a group of friends. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, of, of men in this group who would not have liked each other, quite frankly, in regular society, who did not associate with one another, who were of different social classes, different backgrounds, different parts of, of Israel, and yet, and yet, Jesus calls them all together to accomplish one purpose. We're going to look at that purpose in just a moment. What's so special about the number 12? Well, it's symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus here, in assigning 12 men to be His closest associates, is in essence saying, I am going to reconstitute Israel by My very coming. I emphasize that it was, a symbol, it was symbolic of the 12 tribes because as is clear from whom Jesus selected, they did not literally represent the 12 tribes. Please make note of that. They, many of them were brothers, including Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. And quite likely, Matthew or Levi and James, both sons of Alphaeus, were brothers. Why did Jesus appoint disciples? Here we come to the crux of our lesson today. Let's turn back to verse 14 and look carefully at what it says in verse 14. Why did Jesus appoint apostles? It says, Then He appointed twelve, that they might be with Him, that He might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Now Jesus had already indicated early on in the Gospel of Mark the end of goal of the disciples. Remember what he said in Mark 1.17? He said this. He says, if you follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now that's a very uh, kind of an abstract statement, an abstract objective if you will. Uh, but we looked at that a little bit earlier on in our studies in Mark. And again, I refer you to that sermon if you're interested to, to go through that. But what did Jesus mean by the term fishers of men? Well, I think He spells it out a, a whole lot more in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. You see, Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, is the means by which the disciples would become fishers of men. Verses 14 and 15 is the means. It's how the disciples would become fishers of men. And by fishers of men, I mean to say people who are taken out of God's judgment and put into life with God. Taken out of God's judgment and put into with God. There are four things that Jesus mentions that are the means by which they would, they would accomplish becoming fishers of men. First, He says they're going to be with Me. Jesus says, I want you to be with Me. Second, He says, I'm sending you to preach. Third, He says, I'm sending you to heal the sick. And fourth, like number three, I'm sending you to cast out demons. Now, I suggest to you um, that with the exception of number one, Numbers 2, 3, and 4, the means by which they would, they would become fishers of men. Numbers 2, 3, and 4 focus on the missional aspects of their authority. When I say the term missional, I mean that the disciples were being given authority so that they could go out 
and accomplish the mission that Jesus had given them. Namely, to bring people out of God's judgment and into life with God. The means by which they would do this is they would preach the Word. They would preach the Word as Jesus preached. Also, they would heal the sick and cast out demons. They would perform signs authenticating that preaching which would give the people, if they listened to that preaching and adhered to it, which would give the people life with God. The purpose in Jesus giving them this authority was missional in focus. It was that the people might come back to Almighty God. Now the disciples in their quest to become fishers of men would first need to learn from Jesus. And so Jesus says, number one, hey, first you've got to be with me. You've got to be with me. You've got to watch what I do. You've got to hear what I say and how I teach. You've got to, you've got to interact as I interact with the people of Israel. You've got to see what I do and learn from me. Take close note again of these last three elements because up until this point, these missional elements of Jesus' ministry had only been accomplished by Jesus Himself. Back in Mark 1.38, Jesus says, Let's go on to the next towns so that I may preach. For that is why I have come. Let's go to the next town so that I may preach. For that is why I have come. Jesus was doing the work of the ministry. Those who followed Him were simply onlookers. But now Jesus, recognizing the overwhelming tasks before Him and the great multitudes that are now approaching Him, wisely delegates authority to others. Now I got a little funny, funny little picture here of somebody delegating. All right, like uh, I, I was told uh, by a few folks that my son likes to delegate in the nursery, and so I thought I'd get a baby picture. Uh, uh, Pat Mitchell calls it Bennett the bulldozer, right, Pat? That's right, because you know he, he's a bulldozer. He's telling the other little babies what to do, I guess, in there. But hey, I want to I want to highlight that delegation for a moment. Delegate. Delegate. Jesus. Eternal authority, inherent authority, complete authority. And what did He do? He delegated that authority. He gave up that authority. He says, I want you to join me in carrying out this authority. And I I just bring up this word delegation and this concept of delegation because I think so often in the church, um, we as leaders in the church, some of you who are ministry leaders, uh, elders, uh, in some sort of ministry director position, I I confess, even in my leadership, that there are many, many times where I like to hold on to those responsibilities. We like to hold on to everything we can to make sure we do it right, because if we do it, it gets done right. And we don't delegate. We don't empower and entrust other people to join us in this endeavor. And I encourage you, whether you're in Awana, whether you're uh, leading the, the Thanksgiving feast Uh, whether you're directing the fire cleanup, whatever ministry you're in, or whatever home environment you're in, or work environment you're in, delegate authority. It It is the symbol of a good leader who can delegate authority and let the people carry out those tasks. Empower them and trust them to carry out those tasks. But coming back here, in effect, the disciples were to do, going back to that slide, the disciples were to do the very things Jesus was doing. Preaching, healing, exercising demons. These were things that only Jesus was doing up until this point. They were to heal the souls 
of the people by preaching the message of reconciliation, forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And they were to heal the bodies of people by healing the sick and exercising the demons. The disciples, like Jesus, were to use their authority for missional, for service purposes. Tending to the spiritual and the physical needs of the people. Their authority was meant to serve. I say again, their authority was meant to be of service. How is authority used today? It seems to me that authority is often abused rather than used in our world today. Um, I think of three things when I think of the improper use of authority. Number one, we use authority improperly when we focus on maintaining our authority. These are people who say, I must hold on to my authority at all costs. You know folks like this? Perhaps you're one of them. People who, no matter what it takes, they're going to maintain their position of authority. When a, when, a, when a pastor does this, he ends up compromising. Because if some people don't like certain aspects of his ministry, um, maybe, they, maybe they want him to, uh, uh, let's say, tell more jokes on a Sunday. Or be more topically minded and less oriented to the Word. Okay, When a pastor starts listening to people who say that, and thus wants to maintain his authority, and capitulates to the people, what ends up happening? His authority, in effect, diminishes. In business, if I, I, uh, I often reference um, uh, the loan business because I know that in the loan business, uh, I have family and friends in the loan business and they tell me very often that the loan business is a very corrupt industry in which oftentimes you were asked by your superior to falsify information on the document. If you want to maintain your position, what do you do? Well, some people capitulate. Other people hold fast. But if your focus is, I must maintain my position of authority, you'll always capitulate. You'll always give in. And that is an improper use of your authority, of your position. Be wary. Be mindful of a focus on keeping your position at all costs. I will not keep the position I am in as pastor of this church if I am compelled to compromise. I would rather leave this position of authority than compromise what I'm supposed to be doing in it. Number two, we use authority improperly when we feel entitled to the position of authority we hold. These are people who say, I've paid my dues, I deserve this. I've paid my dues, I deserve this. Um, I have a friend, a pastor friend in another church, and uh, he... um, he was dealing with uh, a leader in their church who was using these kinds of arguments. Um, he was dealing with a leader in their church who was saying, hey, I've earned this. I've paid my dues. I'm, i got good character. i got a good resume here. I've served the church well. I've earned this. I deserve this position. I'm entitled to this position. I say very clearly, the moment I hear someone say those kinds of things, that is precisely the moment I know they're not fit for that position. The moment I hear a pastor or an elder or a ministry leader or any kind of director say, yeah, I deserve this. 
that is precisely the moment in which I no longer think they are qualified to fill that role. We are never entitled to positions of authority. We are never entitled. We're we're never deserving of it. We never appeal to our own resume, our own character, and say, look, that's why I should be here. We allow others to promote us to positions of authority. We allow others to ratify and say, yes, you are supposed to be in this position. We don't entitle ourselves to those positions. Three, we use authority improperly when we deliberate how to attain more power. These are people who say, I'm not stopping until I reach the top. Um, Here's a personal frustration of mine, uh, and I bet it is of yours too. How long has the presidential campaign been going by now? How long? Maybe like a year, right? At least least nine months, right? Like basically the campaign started at the beginning of 2007, and, and yet the vote is November of 2008, right? So people are campaigning for two years for a presidential position. Here's my beef with that. When a senator or a governor or a representative or any kind of government leader campaigns for that long for the next position of power, what's happening to their existing position? What's happening to it? It's falling by the wayside. I would have more respect for a politician who waited and said, no, 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 I'm going to do my job first. I'm going to do the position that I was voted to do first, rather than spend two years campaigning for the next position. I would have more respect for a politician who did that than someone who spends two years neglecting their existing position so that they can attain the next position. Do you catch my drift on this? People who are looking to attain more power do so at the expense of their existing position. Show me someone who says, I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it so well such that when I'm looking for that next opportunity, people will look and say, what an amazing job he or she did there. Let's give them that next step. That's the kind of person I'm looking for in leadership. Not someone who campaigns for two for the next spot. We've looked at uh, improper use of authority. What about a biblical view of authority? What what does the Bible have to say about authority? You know, when we examine the Bible, something is very, very clear. Authority is always used for service. Always used for service. Every single time. I have a number of examples that I'm going to cite very briefly. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 45, the disciples are quibbling. They're arguing with one another, saying, Who is better, Jesus, me or him? Who's greater in the kingdom? Who's going to be the best? And Jesus turns to them and says, you know what? The rulers of the Gentiles do the things that you're doing. Those who rule over, those who are in in political positions of leadership in Rome, those are the kinds of things they're concerned about. Who's greater? He says, you want to know who's greater? The greatest of all is the one who serves. The greatest of all is the one who serves. Serves To quote Jesus, he says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Even Jesus Christ, all authority and all power, came to serve. 
Authority is used for service. How about Romans 13, verses 1 to 6? Do you know the term used twice to describe governing authorities in Romans chapter 13? It's the word servant. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul is discussing government and citizen relations in Romans chapter 13. And you know the word he uses twice to describe the governing authorities is he tells Paul, he, Paul tells the people in Rome, he says, look, those authorities are given to serve you. They're meant to be servants. When's the last time you heard a, a, a representative say, I am your servant? That's their position. That is what it is intended to be. They are meant to serve the people in Romans chapter 13. Take a look at the next one. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 29. Here we have the husband-wife relationship. The husband-wife relationship, Paul says, he says that the husband is head or is authority or has leadership over the wife, so also Christ is head of the church. And he says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. We focus so often on the authority of the husband over the wife in Ephesians 5, when in reality, the authority in Ephesians 5 is given so the husband may love and give himself for his wife, just like Jesus loved and gave himself for the church. You see how radically different you read that passage when you look at it more clearly? It's not that the husband is to be totalitarian over the wife, dictatorial, not at all. That authority in Ephesians 5 of a husband over a wife is given so the husband will love and give himself for his wife. Just as Christ also loved and gave himself for the church. And the second example, he goes on, he says, hey, no husband hates his own body. So also, as you do your own body, you're to nourish and cherish your wife. Nourish and cherish your wife. That is the purpose of for which the authority is given you. Authority is used for service. What about God Himself? What about the triune nature of God? You know, many, many passages could be alluded to here, but in John chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus makes it explicitly clear that He, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, voluntarily submits Himself to the Father. Voluntarily submits Himself. Jesus Christ having all authority, all power, all dominion, and yet He Himself, a part of the Godhead, voluntarily submits Himself to the Father, as the Holy Spirit does to the Son and the Father. Finally, Matthew 28, verses 18-20. to We see Jesus declaring that all authority has been given to Him. But rather than using that authority um, to, to wield power and judgment... He goes on to say, because that authority has been given to me, I want you to go out and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Authority given for a missional service purpose. Authority is never given so that power can be wielded at the expense of others. When power is properly and righteously used, there is great benefit. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. What can we learn from this study today? Application number one. 
Jesus used His authority for missional purposes. I might add service purposes. He was a servant. So also, we who are Jesus' ambassadors should be focused on ministering to the spiritual and physical needs of people. That is why we have been given authority. Two, Jesus delegated responsibility to others. So also, we who are in authority, whether it's at home, at work, or at church, should learn to entrust and empower others to accomplish objectives, whether they be family objectives, business objectives, or spiritual objectives. Learn to delegate. Three, do you struggle with misusing authority? Immerse yourself in studying the proper uses of authority in the Word of God. The remedy to improper behavior is to meditate on God's Word, allowing the Spirit of God to use the Word to change us. I might also add that a couple of years ago, Zane Hodges gave an amazing message on authority called, Have You Stolen Power? Dated August 21, 2005. It's listed on our website. If you are dealing with the misuse of power, I encourage you to listen to that, that sermon, August 21, 2005. Really, really insightful. And let me add one last thing. Not up on the screen. Um, those of you who are not in authority, say, well, this message didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I'm, I don't really have major positions of authority. That's okay. I want you to encourage those in authority. I want you to recognize that those in authority, um, myself, the elders, other ministry directors and whatnot in this church, and those in the business world and at home, um, authority is not an easy thing. And it is easy to misuse authority. It is easy. It is our sinful nature that, that desires to go back and, and to use that for power, to maintain it, and it ends up in being compromised. Pray for those in authority, Paul says. Pray for those in authority. Encourage them. Let them know when they're doing a good job because leaders need to hear that. They need to be affirmed that their authority is being used well. And that will encourage them to continue to use it in the way that Jesus would have them. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank You for this study on authority today. God, we're grateful that Your Son has given us a very clear picture of the purpose of authority. He gave it to His disciples not that they might be lords over the people, but that they might love and serve the people, preaching to them words of life, healing them, exercising demons, taking care of their physical needs. Father, we thank You that the the, the pattern of authority that You give in Your Word is radically different than that that the world gives. The world says question authority. Your Word says use it properly and it will be respected. The people will rejoice if it is used in that way. I pray, Father, that You would help us who are in leadership to use our authority as You would have us do it. And those of us who are not in authority today, I pray that they would be people who would encourage and lift up and pray for those who are over them. Thank You, Father, for this time in Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.